0: the cultural captivity of the church means that when we preach the bible on sunday we don't preach it like it was written to the community we read, read it like people who are captive to western philosophy purely for the individual and that is a western cultural captivity where the western value of individualism is more important or drives us more than the biblical value of community which again you see over and over again throughout scripture the call to God's people, the church in Corinth, the church in Ephesus, not to just an individual.
1: You're listening to As in Heaven, a Christian conversation on race and justice. Today's interview is with Dr. Soung Chan-Ra. He talks about what it looks like to reclaim the church from cultural captivity and the specific ways that Western attitudes of individualism have crept into our modern ministry philosophies. Dr. Soon Chan-Ra has studied these topics for years and brings a wealth of insight and knowledge to the table in this conversation. Jim Davis and Mike Agerson are your hosts. Mike Graham is the executive producer. My name is Matt Kenyon. I'm the technical producer. And now please enjoy this episode of As in Heaven with Dr. Soon Chan-Ra.
2: Well, welcome to As in he- Heaven Season 2, uh, our epi- our season finale here. I'm Jim Davis, uh, joined with my co-host Mike Aitchison, and we are very privileged today to be joined by Dr. Soon Chan-Ra, Professor Soon Chan-Ra uh, from Chicago, Illinois. I, you know, I'm looking at your, your background, and it really is neat, just the diversity of background. You have You have uh, four—you have two degrees from Gordon-Conwell Seminary. You have a degree from Harvard, a degree from Columbia. You worked with InterVarsity for a season at MIT, if I'm not mistaken, or you interacted with MIT— Um, You were the founding pastor for a multi-ethnic urban ministry, uh, a church in Cambridge, Massachusetts. You've authored at least five books that I have have been blessed by. Um, And we're going to talk specifically about the next evangelicalism, releasing the church from Western culture captivity. Um, And now you are currently the professor of church growth and evangelism at, at North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago. I thank you so much for joining us.
0: My pleasure. Glad to be with you.
2: Uh, thanks so much for
3: joining us today, Dr. Ra, uh, especially related to your most recent book. I, I've gotten some uh, text messages from my intern. And listen, I'm so blessed by what, what I've engaged. And you speak a language that all of us need to learn. So thank you so much for joining us today. We look forward to being blessed by you.
0: Thank you. That's very high praise. Thank you.
2: Well, I'm going to give you a little uh, context um, here. Mike and I minister in Orlando, Florida. And uh, Orlando has just seen an unbelievable shift in the past 10 years. So in the past 10 years, probably uh, 15% of our population have left the church. There are now more, if you combine de-churched and and unchurched together, there are more of them than there are church people in our city. And what's interesting is the objections to the gospel have changed as well. So what we used to really encounter more intellectual objections about evil, uh, the existence of evil in the Bible, et cetera, apologetics... Now we're really faced with more ethical and moral objections to uh, to Christianity. Is it good? Do we contribute to human flourishing? Do we care about issues of racism and sexual abuse? Um, and I just, I, I, and I'm not limiting our conversation to Orlando anyway, any way. You, You've lived in the Northeast. You're in Chicago. You have a, a thirty thousand foot view. But I would love uh, to ask you how you process this cultural shift in the objections that we're hearing from the unchurched and dechurched people.
0: Yeah, I don't see this as um, kind of epochal change, as in, you know, we had one era and then another era was we entered into. Um, I see this as kind of a, an ongoing continuation of um, some of the challenges that the church has been facing. And so some of the intellectual challenges um, have bled into or has kind of uh, seamed into uh, some of the ethical challenges. Um, and so I see, I don't see that as kind of like we were doing one thing one, in one era and then we shifted to another thing in a different era. I think what we are seeing, though, is that some of the intellectual propositions that we have claimed as Christians, um, we didn't live up to them. Um, you know, we have, we have claimed, uh, you know, uh, that God is love and God is just. And God cares for those who are who are outside the walls of faith. And you know we've kind of made some really important and strong propositional assertions that I think um, are valid and needed to be you know affirmed and, and very, uh, clarified and and communicated clearly. Uh, but I think what you're alluding to now is that we didn't really live up to those assertions. And so our, our orthodoxy, we, were, we, were, we, we thought we had gotten it right and we thought that's what we were responding to in the world around us to kind of assert the truths of the gospel, which you know, I, I, I hold to. It's more that we didn't live out the truths of the gospel. And uh, the world now, frankly, is calling us on our hypocrisy that uh, we claimed that out of our scriptures, out of our faith, uh, there is an understanding of God as uh, God's expression of love, mercy, justice, and truth. And yet our lives and the life of the church even has not reflected that. Uh, so there's, it's, it's, it's a continuation of that. At the same time, um, I do think that there are some significant changes in our culture uh, that's kind of exasperate, what, what's exasperate, what's going on, right? So uh, our claims have been pretty stand, uh, 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 common and, uh, and it's been standard and it's been uh, the same, uh, yet we haven't lived into those claims. And then on top of that, the culture and society has changed around us so that these claims don't seem to have the same impact that it did maybe a generation earlier.
2: So I, that's a really good answer. I have, um, we, we both, I think, minister to people who, uh, see the changes around us, and and it produces fear. And, and some maybe rightly placed fear, some wrongly p- placed fear. And, of course, the job of a pastor is to, you know, to walk with people in their fear and their loss, point them to Jesus, who understands that better than anybody. Um, but what opportunities do you see, um, missional opportunities in this, this cultural shift, epical or not? Sure.
0: I think— um The cultural opportunities are to embrace the full narrative of Scripture. And the full narrative of Scripture includes both a triumphant victory that Jesus will reign, but also the suffering of Jesus on the cross. And that both are a part of the reality of the Christian life. So the previous generations probably witnessed more of the triumphant victory. Uh, the previous generation, the Boomers, and to some to some extent the Gen Xers, uh, they built churches that got big really fast. They built churches that had huge budgets, and we had these kind of superstar mega churches that were seeming to kind of pop up everywhere, and they seemed to be influencing the culture and influencing society. Um, so. That kind of victorious, triumphant Christianity is something that the current generation has had a taste of, um, and yet uh, it doesn't seem to settle well with the younger generation. And so that's kind of one of those changes where we we acknowledge that, yeah, that's a part of the scripture, the victory and triumph of the church. But the suffering and the struggle and the pain of the church is also part of the biblical story. And so that's where we are making some of this disconnect. Uh, We had time periods in American church history and in more recent history where we were flourishing and everything was going well and we thought the church would keep growing and keep growing. But we're at a time period where the church is struggling, uh, where the church is viewed maybe not in the positive light, but in a more negative light. Um, Both of those realities have to be dealt with. And both of those, I would say, are good opportunities, In fact, I would say it's an opportunity to engage the part of scripture that we don't know as well, because we didn't have to engage like lament or stories of suffering or people who are struggling because our churches were doing so well. We didn't think we had to deal with that. Now we're coming to the realization that the gospel is not just about winning all the time. Sometimes the gospel is about struggle and pain. And that's why we need to be more attentive to the stories of, as the scripture talks testify, the alien and the immigrant among us, to the very least of our brothers and our sisters, to those who are the crippled, the lame, the blind, and the sick, those who have been marginalized beside, by society. It's time to listen to those stories because we've only heard the other side of the story is, is we should always be victorious. We should always be winning. We should always be growing. We should always be you know at the top of our game. Uh, it's a different era. And I think... It's it's a, it's the way that God challenges us to read the whole canon of Scripture and not just pick out the verses that we like.
3: Dr. Rahr, well said. You are moving in a direction that resonates with me deeply, and I'm wondering if you could take us down the road a little bit further in terms of what is the significance of minority leadership in this massive change, this shift, this era of concern that we are seeing, and um, how might... How might the changing demographic of our nation in particular uh, be in need of minority leadership? And then um, what, what might the historic African-American narrative bring to bear on this present moment in light of the things you just said?
0: That's a fantastic question, and, and particularly related to my research. My, um, I, th- I think I forgot to mention I actually have a doctorate from Duke. I just completed that fairly recently. And my dissertation was on the black church. And specifically on African American evangelicals and their very critical role uh, in in evangelicalism in the 1960s and 1970s. And one of the lessons that I learned was how important it is to listen to the voices that have typically been on the margins of our faith or margins of our society. That those voices that we didn't consider to be the powerful, the central ones, uh, which by and large tended to be white uh, evangelical churches, were kind of at the center. Uh, and black churches, African-American churches were kind of on the margins or on the on the borders. Uh, when actually now in the midst of suffering that is in our world, the voices of the marginalized actually need to be brought front and center. Uh, because those narratives of a people that have gone through suffering, like the black church, uh, you know, the, the black church went through an incredible um, time period of suffering after suffering, uh, slavery. Uh, the slave trade, Jim Crow laws, uh, just the the, the the long history of oppression of African-Americans. And it was the black church that was able to pastor and shepherd this community towards a spiritual vitality and health that is really a, an amazing testimony. And if we're saying that we're at a place where there's great suffering in our society, such as COVID-19, such as racial unrest, such as on, on the cusp of economic depression. These are major, major challenges. I wanna learn from those who've gone through these kind of challenges before and who have emerged out of that, still praising God and loving God. And that's where I look towards the black church to say, if you wanna uh, read the history and know the story of people who have gone through every uh, uh, pressure and stress and, 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 and uh, difficulty imaginable, it's the African-American community And yet, after all of that, the black church still stands up and worships God. Now, that's a lesson we need to learn instead of saying, hey, we're going to fix this problem for ourselves. Oh, hey, we're going to we're going to do whatever we want to do. No, there was this incredible um, spiritual death in the black church in the midst of crisis and conflict and, and tremendous opposition even and tremendous suffering that I think right now those lessons are very critical. And I would say with the demographic changes, uh, it becomes even more critical because we need to hear the voices and the margins as this country moves from a majority white population to a majority non-white population, Uh, both in society at large, as you're probably seeing in Orlando, you're probably seeing this drastic demographic changes in Orlando. We're seeing it nationally. But what's interesting is that change is happening in the church first. The churches are becoming more diverse than society
2: around us. That is interesting. I hadn't thought. I hadn't thought about that. That makes a lot of sense. So you you write about this in a big way in your book, "The Next Evangelicalism: Freeing the Church from Western Cultural Captivity." Um, it, it's a strong book and it's very compelling. And I would love for uh, you to briefly explain to this audience if they're not familiar with the book what is your main thesis and and the points that that support this main thesis in your book
0: sure so i wrote this book actually about 10 10 plus years ago now and it's interesting because i you know i'm not predicting things i'm just saying this is probably going to happen this is probably the trends we're seeing and um the things that i said would you know the trend following the trends Pretty much every one of them has turned out to to be. Uh, And one of those transitions, the theme of one of the major themes in the book is that American society is changing very dramatically in its demographics and that the church is actually going to experience those changes at a faster rate. In other words, the prediction was that by 2042, or in the decade of the 2040s, that the majority of Amer- there will be no ethnic majority in the United States. Um, white Americans will make up less than 50 percent. The rest of America, used to be the minority group, will actually make up more than 50 percent. Uh, that projection is, is still on its right tra- trajectory, that we're at about, you know, we're, we're on track to hit that number. Um, what I said was the church will probably experience that level of diversity, 50 percent, 50 percent, way before actually the society experiences that diversity. And it actually has turned out to be true. In 2018, uh, PRRI did a research project that showed that 17 percent of the American population identify as white evangelical and 16 percent of America identifies as non-white evangelical. So we're already, if not, you know, two years later, we might have passed that. We're already very close to that 50-50 number where the number of evangelicals that are people uh, of color versus white evangelicals, they're about 50-50. And this is 2020. So about 20 years before society has experienced this kind of leveling of the, of the demographics, the church has already experienced it. So my first assertion was this de- demographic change is happening, whether we like it or not, it is happening um, it's not due to immigration. It's actually due to birth rates. Uh, these demographic changes are already here. And especially if they're happening fast in the church, we've got to deal with these demographic changes. The other side of that, of course, was, uh, but why is it so hard for the church to deal with these demographic changes? Why is there opposition? Why is there uh, even negative language around non-white Christianity? Where is there, why is there an opposition, it seems? And so one of the things, a couple of things I pointed out is that there are uh, narratives, worldviews, imagination, thread lines within American evangelicalism that prevents us from entering into this uh, diversity that's already here. So even though we have a demographic diversity right now, we don't have leadership diversity. We don't have cultural diversity. We don't have diversity in so many different areas. Uh, we still have a, a, a captivity to Western culture, which is still seen as central and primary, and so my assertion was that if we're going to actually go into the future, ready to address this demographic change and this increasing diversity, uh, we're going to have to examine the cultural captivity that we have already, that we are steeped in, uh, because that will prevent us from, in a healthy gospel, biblical way, engaging the diversity that is already here.
2: So you, you chose a you chose the word captivity. And, and I know authors don't, especially professors, you, you, you choose your words carefully. What made you want to go with that word?
0: Well, captivity in kind of historical theology has been used quite frequently. So one of the first times we heard about this, I mean, it's been in a lot of places, but one of the more major places that it came up was uh, what uh, Luther called the Babylonian captivity of the church. And stated that um, that, the, that iteration of the Catholic Church in particular with its high view, you know, high, high emphasis on indulgences and, you know, kind of a loss of sense of understanding of scripture and grace. Uh, so Luther stood against the Babylonian captivity of the church uh, and kind of the word captivity, meaning that um, a church had become captive to the culture and to the society around it rather than to the word of God itself. And different people have used that. Um, The phrase suburban captivity of the church was used in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, There was uh, some folks who were calling the American captivity of the church during some of the mission eras. Um, Pelagian captivity of the church was another theologian usage of that. So the idea is that there are certain uh, cultural values that the church becomes enamored to and captivated and captured by uh, that actually uh, uh, is actually... um, under undermining the biblical value system so that the cultural values which we are captive to become more central to our ecclesiology than the biblical value so one of the examples that i use is that the value of individualism is not a biblical value it's actually a uh, secular value and more specifically a western secular philosophy value so if you you know study Western history, like I've done in my, in my work, uh, you see over and over again, the centrality, the centering of the individual in Western philosophy and thought. Western sociology, Western philosophy, Western thought is, is primarily about the individual, the individual's rights, the individual assertions and identity. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong or right. I'm saying that's much more cultural, Western culture, than it is biblical. So the example that I use is, well, in the Bible, uh, you have 66 books, and uh, 63 of them are clearly written to communities, and three of them maybe are written to individuals, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, which very few people actually read. So you've got three books of the Bible that are written to individuals, but the cultural captivity of the church means that when we preach the Bible on Sunday, we don't preach it like it was written to the community. We read read it like people who are captive to Western philosophy, purely for the individual. And that is a Western cultural captivity where the Western value of individualism is more important or drives us more than the biblical value of community, which again, you see over and over again throughout scripture, the call to God's people, the church in Corinth, the church in Ephesus, not to just an individual. So when we talk about... um, God knows the plans he has for you. We uh, always interpret that as God has a plan for me, the individual. God has a plan for John, and God has a plan for Matt, and God has a plan for Mary. Actually, the you, as many of us know, it's plural. It's plural. But our Western captive mind always translates that you into the singular, and we have misinterpreted scripture to make it seem like what's more important is you, the individual, gets blessed. Rather than actually, God's talking to the whole community, and so that will be a reflection of a captivity to a Western value and a Western philosophy more than to actually the words of Scripture themselves.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. My understanding of the um, the evolution of the English language: the word "you" that we what we have is actually the plural word. We dropped the singular. Somewhere, and then, and then we made the plural the singular word. And in the South, they adopted y'all, and they actually now have two words that mean you plural. <laughs> so my—here's uh, here, a, a really personal question for me. You—both you and Mike Ageson, your, um, your piece of—a piece of how you're working towards um, uh, addressing this is to start a legitimate multicultural church. Um, that has not been my journey, and I, I've loved walking with brothers and sisters who have been a part of that. My uh, my church is largely white people who who care deeply. Really, I mean, there's nobody here who doesn't want um, the best for everyone. Um, so, how would you you know if you were to come in and spend? Spend a lunch with, let's just even say our leadership, you know, the elders, the Dickens staff, key stakeholders. What advice do you have for us um, in, in these changes?
0: You know, there are some who say that every church should be multi-ethnic. I, I don't think that's actually true. I don't think that's necessary. Um, I think more churches should be multi-ethnic because if the numbers are true, then about 10 percent of the churches in America, maybe, you know, right in that threshold Um, are considered multi-ethnic. Using the most generous categories of multi-ethnic, you can say if you have 80% of one group, 20% of another, you're considered officially multi-ethnic. And only about 10% of the churches in the U.S. qualify for that. That feels low. Now, can we get from 10% to 100%? I'm not sure that that's the goal. So I would say that there is a legitimate space where there should be certain churches, especially geographic reasons, cultural reasons, where there can be places where there are single ethnic churches. So I would argue that there are certain places where the black church uh, with its specific ethnic and cultural identity and racial identity is a necessity. I would say that the Spanish speaking congregation with their specific linguistic and cultural identity is at places a necessity. Korean churches, Chinese churches, you know, churches and especially language based churches. I think there are places where we need those kind of spaces. So I I, I believe it's a both and model. Now, again, statistically, if it's only 10 percent, that number feels low. I'm not trying to say let's move that number from 10 percent to 100 percent and you know force churches to merge together because within two years those churches were split apart anyway so you know we're not talking about just kind of this haphazard throwing together and forming a multi-ethnic churches i do believe however that there can be intentionality in our communities to move towards a macro multi-ethnicity uh, micro multi-ethnicity is needed as in local churches that are diverse but we really need this also in the macro level and that it's a both and type of strategy. And on the macro level, one of the best things that I think we can do uh, is if a community is not ready to become a multi-ethnic church or that's not necessarily within the next 10 years that it's not in their it's not in their it's not in their uh, view, um, uh, begin to develop the strategy to strengthen those communities in a way that even if they're not multi-ethnic, can deal with diversity and multi-ethnicity. So I'll use this illustration that I once said. I thought it was a really, really powerful one. Um, the, you know, imagine you know, God in front of a mirror. I know it's kind of a quirky illustration, but you know, uh, the Bible says that we are the image of God. Human beings are the image of God, and the image is a reflection of who God is. It, it mirrors who God is. Imagine God in front of a mirror, and the reflection in the mirror is humanity. When sin enters into the world and uh, sin, you know, uh, breaks that uh, uh, image, the the pieces of the mirror fall to the ground. They're broken. And two things happen. One, you get thousands of different pieces of the mirror, but you also get, because they fell on the floor and they're fallen, uh, the the pieces of the mirror get dirty. And I think there are two ways we want to restore the humanity to the image of God. One would be we need people to clean off their piece of the mirror, right? That piece of the mirror if it's dirty, it's not going to best fully reflect the image you've got. It needs to be cleaned off. And then the other part is to actually be a, a, the adhesive or glue that brings the broken pieces of the mirror together. Both are important. And I think, um, you know, um, you know, what we, what, uh, you know what Michael and I have done is try to be those, the adhesive and the glue that brings the pieces of the mirror together. Now, I should warn you, if that's your calling, uh, when you play at the edges of glass, you're going to get cut. And those of us who've been in multi-ethnic ministry, we know what it's like to be in the edges and get cut. Uh, but I also want to value those who are cleaning up their piece of the mirror so that the mirror, when restored, can fully reflect the image of God. This is actually an illustration from Stan Inouye, a Japanese-American theologian out in California, I thought it was a brilliant illustration about how multi-ethnic churches and single-ethnic churches can actually work together side by side. Um, So I would say that one of the goals of a church that is predominantly white and maybe in a neighborhood where diversity might not be possible uh, is to clean up that piece of the mirror. Uh, And that includes uh, purging the community of racism. Uh, That includes preparing the children for a multi-ethnic future, because that is a reality. So those of us who are you know, 50 and over, um, we've lived in kind of ethnic bubbles and that's been our normal reality. Maybe we grew up in ethnic bubbles and our churches were ethnically specific and, and not cross-cultural, cross-multiethnic, multi um, but our children are not growing up in that context at all. Uh, they've already experienced multicultural, multi-ethnicity in their schools because most schools, the statistic was that most schools are six times more diverse than the local church. The local school is six times more diverse. So it is likely that our astute, our children are experiencing this diversity ahead of time. Now, if they're getting a message in, this, in the secular culture that diversity can be handled this way, and they're not getting anything from the church, where the church says, respect one another, not because the law tells you to do, but respect each other because the image of God is found in every single human being. Respect one another because it is the call of God to love one another as Christ has loved us. Now, that feels like a a really powerful role of the church. And that kind of teaching, that kind of uh, leading of especially young people to understand the depth of scripture so that it prepares them to be better Christians in the world. Um, That can be done whether you're in a multi-ethnic church or a single ethnic church.
3: A lot of times I, I get questions from predominantly uh, white churches, uh, brothers and sisters, well-meaning, want, that want to move the ball down the field. They recognize that they are not a reflection, as, as best a reflection of the kingdom from a demographic standpoint as they can be. Um, and in the recent conversations— there's been a lot of, you know, pushback about how much do we need to continue reflecting on history? How much do we need to talk about the past? One of the common things I get is why do we even need to talk about this? Aren't we past this now? Can you talk about the significance of established dominant culture institutions and churches doing a robust and serious history lesson that investigates how they got to the point of where they are now before moving forward to pursue diversity and the dangers of not doing that?
0: Yeah, well, you know, I I turn to scripture here. And when I look at the scripture, um, one of the most common commands in the Old Testament, if not the most um, um, upfront command, is the phrase, remember, remember, remember. I can't think of, especially someone with a background in history, I can't think of a more uh, precise and, and, and clear admonition for history than the idea of remember, remember. Now, some of that is remember the good things that God has done for you, but also some of it is remember when you were slaves in Egypt. So it's a both and. It is remember that God saved you out of your depth and cares for you and loves you and is on your side, but also remember the depths out of which you have arisen. Remember the, the places that you used to, to dwell in. Um, and so that's why I think it's good to remember the history, both the good and the bad. And I think this is where uh, the cultural captivity piece comes in again. If we are captive to an American narrative that is seeped in exceptionalism, triumphalism, uh, a captivity of hyper-individualism, a captivity to consumerism, a captivity to the assumption of one people grouping superior to the other, if these are the narratives that are deeply embedded into our society but also embedded in the church – the process of remembering allows us to confront these dysfunctional theological narratives and stories, right? Mm-hmm. So truth uh, is, is essential in, in uh, shining a light on falsehood. And so that's why history is important, because if we understand the truth of history, it shines a light on our reality. So if we say, oh, there's no such thing as, you know, corporate uh, sin of, of racism. There's no such thing as uh, things that have ha- bad things that have happened to African-Americans or to Native Americans. Um, no, remember the truth of your history. Remember the truth of your story. These things are not fabricated. These things are actually documented, you know, um, it takes a lot of work to become a historian. It takes a lot of work to, to study these things. I know I've, I have multiple degrees that I had to get so that I can learn these things. It takes a lot of work. And so let's do that work. Just because we're afraid of the truth doesn't mean the truth isn't still there. And so I believe that the telling of the truth, which is a very biblical gospel telling, Right, so uh, let me put it another way. If I think about, and I, I'm a professor of evangelism, so I try to teach my students how to evangelize uh, um, and, and communicate the gospel. Now, one of the things I think we do in our gospel communication is what we establish human brokenness. The human need for God is because of our fallenness and because of our sinful nature and because of our sinful acts. Uh, that's a very important thing to do because. If you jump to, oh, you're okay now, well, what am I okay from? Uh, and if there was nothing I'm okay from, nothing no, no bad thing that I'm okay from, then why do I need Jesus, right? I mean, if I'm okay without having sin as kind of the, the truth behind it, then what's the point of Jesus? I don't, I'm okay without Jesus because I'm okay because I don't have sin in my background. So if we're thinking about that for the individual, we've got to think about that for, for communities as well. And to say, oh, we, we don't want to deal with our sinful past. We don't want to deal with our broken history. We don't want to, We don't. That's, that's, that's too hard for us to deal with. It's too difficult for us to talk about those things. Well, frankly, for individual, it's tough to talk about sin. <laughs> frankly, for individuals, uh, nobody wants to talk about how broken and sinful they are and how much they need Jesus. Um, so why are we giving a pass to those who don't want to talk about a broken, sinful history? When God says, remember, and not only remember, but recognize in that history of brokenness and sinfulness, our answer then becomes Jesus. And we understand how much we need Jesus, how much we need the church, how much we need each other, because we are acknowledging how broken we really are.
2: Man, it makes me—it makes me think uh, like Daniel chapter nine, where he's not just remembering; he is actually, in some way, repenting of the sins of his forefathers. And so I, I, that—you also have me going back over every sermon I can think of, thinking, did I did I address it corporately enough? Um, and we we have a number of episodes in this series just dedicated to history and being around people like you and Ligan Duncan and Colin Hanson who have, who. You make me want to do more heavy lifting um, and more reading. So thank you for what you've done on that front. I wonder if you could help, um, you know, this is, you know, help us understand what really is at stake in this moment for the evangelical church in this unique cultural moment. How important is it that, um, that whatever getting it right is, that we get it right?
0: Yeah. Um, this is a multi-layered, complex complex issue. So let me take the first layer for me in terms of my writing. The first layer is, again, going back to the demographic change. Um, the the white evangelical church is on a pretty precipitous decline, and it's very noted and well-documented. Um, It started first in kind of the mainline churches, the more Protestant liberal churches, and they were hemorrhaging about 25% of its membership every four years, which is horrid. I mean, that's just unbelievable loss in membership. The evangelicals were not doing as bad as the mainline churches, except if you took out the numbers uh, of uh, immigrants, number of ethnic minorities, number of multi-ethnic churches, then actually the evangelical church is doing just as bad as the mainline churches. So demographically speaking, when you have a an older population that is is, is declining, as well as a younger population that is leaving the church, and I'm talking about white churches, um, how are you going to survive? And the only way it's surviving is the is the counter-prevailing notion of, Immigrant churches, ethnic churches, multi-ethnic churches, they're on the increase. And so the only way these institutions, evangelical institutions, are going to survive, frankly, Christian colleges and denominations and churches, is uh, recognizing that the demographics of American society are changing. So one of the ways that this has to be addressed then, and the way the culture capital speaks against it, is the recognition that the boomers and the Gen Xers, especially the boomers who are majority white who have these kind of large white evangelical institutions, um, their survival is going to depend on passing that on not to their children and grandchildren, who frankly, many of them have left the church. They're going to pass it on to second-generation Asian-Americans. They're going to pass it on to African-American churches, pass it on to second-generation Latinos and and, uh, 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 Hispanics. We're talking about a pretty major shift in that the Previous generation, the majority was white, uh, middle class, suburban, and the next generation might not be those uh, characteristics. And so, you know, one of the key factors is, is the survival of the church is going to depend on figuring out how this is going to work. And the future of the church depends on that. Uh, the other part of it is the decline within the white community, right? So the, the um, uh, millennials and the Zoomers who are leaving the church in huge numbers, and we alluded to this a little bit earlier, they're leaving because the church is not living up to what it has always uh, preached on. So preached on, God is love, Christ loves you, Christ offers hope for the world, um, you know, the community of believers loves one another, uh, and that's how Jesus will know us by our love. All these things we preached on, we have not lived. And so what's at stake is the gospel uh, for the next generation as well, not just people of color, but young white Christians leaving the church in droves because they are seeing uh, a church that has preached a certain message, but have not lived that certain message, not demonstrated, proclaimed it, but not demonstrated it. So what is at stake is the gospel itself, where we have clung to the truths of scripture and proclaimed it with, with, with vigor and energy. But we have not lived it. Therefore, the next generation is justifiably walking away. And even with that happening, the next generation is going to be multicolored and there is not an awareness of how that important reality is going to play itself out.
2: So there are some churches um, that are openly um, either defensive, dismissive or fight against conversations uh, in the racial justice, multi-ethnic church realm um, some pastored frankly by men that I respect and have blessed me in many other ways. Um, and it make, it, it frankly makes me a little sad to see those positions. It makes me sad. It, not a little, it makes me sad. What do you think, um, happens to churches who take these kind of defensive dismissive or fighting postures?
0: Yeah. Let me use a, a kind of a backdoor to that question. <laughs> and the backdoor is what happened with COVID-19, right? So, uh, I did a lot of consulting and Zoom calls uh, with uh, denominations and churches about how they were going to handle COVID-19, especially evangelism, and what churches were going to do. And what I caught on very quickly after a lot of phone calls with church leaders and denominational leaders is that the churches that were, have been preparing, not specifically for a virus, but had been preparing for um, different, different challenges that were going to come up. And nobody really knew what form it was going to be, but we knew that the world was changing and we're going to have to figure out kind of a flexibility, uh, being nimble, um, even kind of transforming the way we think about church. Um, Those are the churches, uh, at least what I'm seeing, they're doing okay during COVID-19. They, you know, by all metrics of like, are they getting attendance? Actually, some are telling me they're getting more people on their Zoom and uh, Facebook than they were on church services on Sunday. Uh, Some are telling me giving has actually gone up because they actually had planned or were prepared and recognized some kind of change is coming. We need to create an ability to deal with these changing. The churches that are struggling and are actually saying, well, we have to have in-person services because we don't know anything else. We have to force people to come into a potentially a super spreader situation because we don't know what else to do. Uh, Those are the churches that are going to really struggle. And I would say the same thing about the race uh, situation. So what I saw was uh, people who had been having these conversations for quite some time now, um, even if it wasn't every day or every week, they knew something like this was on the horizon, that this kind of powder keg, this kind of like boiling pot of water, you couldn't keep a lid on it for too long. And that... Uh, there was going to be uh, a need to address the situation before it got too uh, too, too problematic. Uh, and they had been having these conversations and they had been reading the books and having conversations and sermon series and, and uh, leadership conversations, and they were preparing. And they were the ones that were ready when uh, uh, this hit full force in, in our society. So when uh, George Floyd, um, you know, we saw these, these horrific images of Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, um, The churches that have been having these conversations for a while, uh, they were the ones that were out there ministering in the community in ways that I think will bode well for 10, 15 years, because these were the churches. And I know, uh, in fact, a a good friend of mine is a pastor in Minneapolis, right in the neighborhood where George Floyd was killed. Um, And they've been out there day one, you know, giving water and, and food and, 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 you know, uh, they were actually doing baptisms there. Uh, they were ready because they had had these conversations and recognized uh, this is not a issue out there. This is an issue for us as our, as our church. So those are the kind of uh, responses that were, uh, that were appropriate and necessary. And I think to prepare yourself for that, in fact, it might be even be too late at this point uh, to try to do remedial education now. It might be too late. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying that, you know, you got some catching up to do here if you're just starting to have these conversations. But that's the reality. If you're not preparing yourself and being aware of the truths and the realities that are there, reading the books now and having those conversations now, when the crisis actually hits, it'll be too late. And uh, what I'm saying is the crisis already hit, but also other crises or other challenges are going to continue to arise, such as a changing demographic that we're no longer going to be able to suppress. That's going to happen no matter what. And if churches aren't ready for it, to get ready for it after it happens, it will be too late at that point.
3: Uh, okay, Dr. Raw. So you went down the avenue that I, uh, is of particular interest to me. And I'm a bit of an optimist, and I'm I'm working on hopeful realism, if you will. Amen. So, I played football in college, and we had several time progressions that we thought through uh, on our drives. We had clock control. We had the four-minute offense, uh, which is typically, I mean, that that's kind of like football nerd talk, all right. But but then we had the two two-minute drill, which many people are familiar with, the two-minute drill, okay? Right now, I I suspect that we are in the two-minute drill mode right now. What does that look like right now for the church in America to say, hey, look at the scoreboard, and it's time to to call the, we call it the hurry-up offense or the K-gun from Jim Kelly or the two-minute drill. And then on the other side of that, I'm going to ask you, A follow-up ahead of time a lot of people remember the big catch from uh, Montana to Clark oh yeah but they're not very familiar with the defensive stop that had to happen on the other side what what does the two-minute drill look like right now for the church and what does the appropriate defensive stop look like right now
0: that's a great question. A great illustration too, by the way. So in contrast to you who actually played football in college, <laughs> my college was the worst football team in the entire nation when I was a student. <laughs> uh, we actually made the cover of Sports Illustrated because we had the longest Division One losing streak. <laughs> so uh, I went to Columbia and... Um, we didn't win a single football game until my senior year. So for three years, we were 0 and 11. And then finally in my senior year, we won uh, our first football game in four years. The cafeteria opened up. They brought all the food out and the whole campus was up was excited because we had won our first game in four years so I have a slightly different story around football than you do when you lose games 48 to nothing there is no need for a two-minute drill on either side of the offense so we were losing bad uh so actually let's take that illustration um and say you know for some the two-minute drill is important for some we're losing 28 to nothing at halftime okay. and so we've got a lot of catching up to do so you know um there's, there's a, 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 a need for awareness of like where we are in this, in this game. And, you know, if we're kind of at halftime, the coaches got to come in and say, all right, we're losing 20, and I think we're going to have to change things up. That's probably where we're more at, at this moment to kind of realize how far behind we are and how far we have to do to catch up, including education, training, all this stuff that if we're, you know, down that far, we're going to have to make some drastic changes. So that will be kind of one aspect of it uh, in terms of the two minute draw. I love that illustration because what happens, you don't have time to go to the sidelines or even go into a huddle to talk this out. You've got to act almost out of um, the, 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 uh, the preparation you had previously. So I'll do, I'll put another illustration out there. So my son and I, our favorite activity is watching movies and we love critiquing movies and especially like good actors Now, if you know some of the best actors, they I think it's called method acting or character acting where they get into the character so much that they say, you know, even if uh, like De Niro, if he's even if he's not on camera, uh, if he's doing method acting, don't talk to him. So if he's playing like a mobster, he'll talk to you like a mobster, even when he's like having his lunch, you know, on the side, because he's so deeply embodied that character. So, you know, anytime you see him, he's acting out of that character until the movie wraps up. So I, what I would say now is that we're at a place where we're trying to embody a character and we act reflexively out of that character. So uh, in the in the middle of a two minute drill is not the time to, you know, um, uh, you know, say, oh, um, let me um, uh, give you a whole new playbook now. No, you got to go with the playbook you've got and you've got to go with what's already ingrained and embedded in, in, in kind of the muscle memory and react, react out of that. So I would say um, it's kind of that time when we react out of our muscle memory or react out of our character, you know, uh, the embedded character. And that's, I think, maybe the most important thing right now. Uh, how deeply embedded is uh, the good character, the moral character, the, the, the justice, love, mercy character,
2: hmm. that
0: when these things come up, that's the reflex we come out of. And that's why cultural captivity is so problematic Because we have embedded a character that is not scriptural, it's cultural. So if our first response to, you know, someone dying on the streets uh, and being, you know, kind of a video lynching is really what it came down to is, well, I don't think that was all that bad. Hold on a second. There's something in the character there that we've got to address, a character of concern for the, the, the person that is hurting. The character, you know, at that moment, what you've done is become the Pharisee that walked on the other side of the street. The Samar- instead of the Samaritan who went down and, and tried to care for the poor, um, for the, for the uh, hurting. Um, so we have got to re-examine our, our internal moral character and say the reflexes we've demonstrated mm. are not the best right now. Mm. Instinctual kind of improvisation that we are showing is not the best. So we're going to have to deepen our character, especially our biblical character, to say, why are people responding more out of uh, a desire for American greatness rather than a desire for mercy and justice and compassion for the poor? Which is the biblical value? Why are people reflexively reflexively acting out of individual rights versus care for the community and care for the very least of our brothers and our sisters? Again, I ask, which is the biblical value? So if people are responding in a way that does not seem to reflect biblical character, we've got to go back and say, hey, this is biblical character. To care for the poor, to care for those who are marginalized in our society, to show love, mercy, and compassion, um, to walk humbly with our God, to walk carefully, but also to show justice and love mercy. Um, these are the biblical characters that we seem to have lost because if, we're, if I'm seeing some of the impulsive, improvised, reflexive action, I don't see biblical character. I see secular character.
2: Well, I, you've kind of – my last question, you've kind of been answering all along during our time together. But if you could, as concisely as you know how um, – what Thinking, you know, what did you say? Hopeful realism, Mike? Hopeful realism. Paint us a picture of what are your hopes and dreams for the Western church in the rest of this, this century?
0: Yeah, and I look at it as there's a momentum that goes in a particular way. And this is kind of a, a social, cultural, um, anthropological study. Um, momentum moves. Cultures have momentum moving in one direction. Um, my hope is that the church presents a counter-momentum. And if in the world we're seeing a, um, a dehumanizing and in the world we're seeing a devaluing, then the church demonstrates the opposite. We, we recognize that in scriptures, uh, there is a, a value given, given to human life um, and that there's a value given to those who are made in the image of God. All of humanity made in the image of God has a value. And therefore we provide these alternative uh, uh narratives to the broken narratives that are in the world um and that's the hope that i have that the church can and has been and can be again um the expression of god's heart uh for uh the world and right now i'm not sure that that's what's happening what i'm seeing is kind of a selfishness i'm seeing kind of a into the hyper individualism i'm kind of seeing you know i'll do this because it's good for me um But the church has been, can be, and should be the place where those kind of values are being expressed. That would be my hope, that the church really is the church, the expression of God's hope, God's mercy, God's grace, God's love, and God's justice.
2: That is a great answer. I just, I can't thank you enough for your time today. To our audience, we commend all of your materials. We're going to have it, we have it on our website. um, And uh, we encourage everybody to interact with the books you've written and the books you will write. Just thank you so much for the time you've given us.
0: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
1: For more interviews, resources, and discussion questions based on the content you've heard, go to asinheaven.com. That's A-S-I-N-H-V-N.com. If you liked this episode, please take a second to give us a five-star rating on iTunes, which you can do right from the Apple Podcasts app if you're listening there, or take a second to share it with a friend. Thanks again for listening.